3: Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve.
4: And I'm Jordan, and today's episode centers around two individuals who scared the living shit out of me whenever their videos <laughs> appeared on MTV when I was in like elementary school.
3: We got Marilyn Manson, we got Trent Reznor. The 90s really were a glory period for a specific kind of rock star. You know, let's call it the horror movie nihilistic hedonist. <laughs> and Trent Reznor and Marilyn Manson personify that archetype. I mean, at their respective peaks, they were the go to rock guys for provocation back when rock bands still had enough capital to. Have people care about whether they were shocking or not.
1: Oh
4: yeah. I remember I, I grew up in this really, really small town in Massachusetts. Like we just got our second stoplight like a few years ago. And we had this tiny civic center where they had like circuses and stuff. And I think it doubled as a planetarium. It was a small, small venue. And for some reason, Marilyn Manson performed there in 1997 and it tore the town apart. Like there was this huge debate, free speech debate and all a little town hall. And it was like in all the little local newspapers and it extended into the classrooms, like English classrooms were talking about all sorts of free speech debates and stuff. It was really interesting to see it at like a ground level. And it's just astonishing to look back
3: now on what massive cultural figures he was and Trent was too. Yeah, it's funny to me that he played there in 97 and not 2007, because I feel like that was the era when Marilyn Manson was basically just playing any little theater that would have him at that point. But, you know, in the 90s, these two guys really were a big deal and, you know, behind the theatrics... You know They were friends and had a kind of mentor-student relationship, with Trent Reznor playing the big brother genius, and Marilyn Manson acting as, as his willing and eager pupil. But then things fell apart, and their friendship ended up in a downward spiral, if you will. There it is. <laughs> we got the pun in early this week. Yes, exactly. There's much to dive into here, so without further ado, let's get into this mess.
4: Trent Reznor grew up with his grandparents in a small farming town in Pennsylvania, and a lot of people don't know this. He was classically trained on piano as a five-year-old and spent upwards of ten hours a day practicing. And the funny thing is, a former piano teacher is quoted as saying, Reznor always reminded me of Harry Connick Jr. when he played." <laughs> which, oh man! Can, can we
3: get a Harry to like Harry to cover closer or something? Like, I really that want would to be hear. amazing. Like, a jazzy closer—that's what yeah. the world needs.
4: <laughs> and he also played sax and tuba in his school marching bands. And performed in like the drama society. He was Judas in Jesus Christ Superstar, which is. little foreshadowing for Antichrist superstar, maybe. And then his teenage years, and he discovered Kiss and horror films, which helped transform him into the Trent that we know and love. And apparently he watched The Omen and became convinced that he was the Antichrist himself and spent hours searching his sculpt for three sixes in the
3: mirror. (laughs) I love that story. And it is so telling with Trent Reznor. But, you know, along with, you know, The Omen and Kiss and horror films, I think it is important to focus just as much on the fact that he was... Classically trained on piano as a kid and that he was involved in productions of Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, because I think at heart Trent Reznor is a music geek. You know, he is a guy who devoted himself to learning everything that he could about music. And it really made him, I think, one of the most talented musicians, certainly of like the alt rock era that we saw. And it's the reason why I think Trent Reznor, you know, when we look at him in retrospect, you know, he's had a much bigger career than just Nine Inch Nails. He's moved into many different arenas, and then we're going to be talking about that in this episode. But that to me is like the crucial contrast between these guys because I think Reznor, once he got past his shock rocker phase, there was this whole other side to him musically that allowed him, you know, to move on in his career. Whereas Marilyn Manson, I think you have the imagery, you have the shock value, and what else do you have beyond that? You know, it seems like there maybe isn't as much of that core with Manson as we have with Trent Reznor.
4: You're right. Yeah. Reznor at his heart. He's a, he's a songwriter. And I feel like that's something that that gets overshadowed too much when you talk about him. And he had a lot to say. I mean, growing up in rural Pennsylvania, he had this strong desire to escape this really sheltered existence. And the sense of isolation is what really motivated him to write and fueled the rage in his music. He would say in an interview with Rolling Stone in 1994, I don't know why I want to do these things other than my desire to escape small-town USA, to dismiss the boundaries, to explore. It isn't a bad place where I grew up, but there was nothing going on but the cornfields. And as a kid, he's out you know, in the cornfields consuming media that just bombarded him with images of cool people and cool places and cool opportunities things that weren't available where he was. And it made him really angry and resentful. And he would say, you know, it almost taught you to realize that this isn't for you. And for Trent, writing was his way out.
3: You know, it, when we do this show, it really brings, I think, to the fore for me about how certain kinds of stories get repeated in rock history. And one of those stories is the alienated Midwesterner mm, who yeah. is looking out you know, into the world and like Trent Reznor, he's seeing these cool people who are living lives of excitement that he can't live, and he eventually turns to music in order to reinvent himself. And we've seen this on our show. I mean, we've talked about people like Michael Jackson, Axl Rose, Billy Corgan. And I think this is also the case for Marilyn Manson. We're going to see that when we get into his story, that he had a very similar background of, you know, in a way you look at the facade of their lives and it's very, you know, small-town America. It's uh, all the things that you would associate with the middle of the country, all the sort of corny heartland type uh, stereotypes. And yet beneath that, just like in, you know, a David Lynch movie, if you dig in to the, the depths of it, it, you see all of these like disgusting insects and dirt and filth rolling around together. And that's what ends up rising to the surface eventually.
4: Midwesterners in pancake makeup. What is it? You got Billy Corgan, you got Marilyn Manson, very pale, Nosferatu look. What is that? Well we don't get a lot of sunshine right. here,
3: Jordan. You know, like we're we're stuck inside for six months out of the year. So I'm not even sure if it's pancake makeup. We're just pale people (laughs) here in the middle of the country.
4: So Reznor moved to Cleveland in 1985 when he was 23. And he got a job as an engineer at a local studio. And the owner let him use the space on the off hours to, to work on his demos. And he drew lyrics from his diary. And many of these early songs ended up on the Nine Inch Nails' first album, Pretty Hate Machine. And his reaction to the success of this record was to effectively rebel against it. And in 1992, he put out two EPs just a few months apart, Broken and Fixed. And this is kind of a unique, some say tricky promotional strategy. I mean, following up a, a successful album with two EPs released in rapid succession. It's definitely unusual, but this is nothing compared to the string of really nightmare inducing music videos that uh, MTV deemed too graphic to air. I mean, the, the most infamous of this is the uh, video for Happiness in Slavery, which shows a man being ripped to pieces by a machine. Seemingly for some element of sexual pleasure. It's oh, uh I, I tried to rewatch that and I got about maybe a minute and a half in and I just yeah. I, I couldn't do it. It's a laugh a minute, feel good hit. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a lot, you know. I mean despite or probably because of these bands, Nine Inch Nails' popularity continued to grow and Reznor really stood out when viewed against these like really kind of grotesquely decadent uh, hair metal bands that were holdovers from from the late 80s. And, and so they were looking more and more like cultural dinosaurs at that point. And Reznor was on the cutting edge.
3: Yeah, and I think the imagery of those videos, you know, it was so overwhelming that I think people in some ways like overlooked the music of Nine Inch Nails uh, mm-hmm. and, and where Trent Reznor was coming from. Because, you know, like when I revisit those early, you know, records, you know, Pretty Hate Machine and the Broken EP, and, and fixed, you know, what strikes me is one, like how good the production is, like just how good at putting together records Trent Reznor is. And and two, like how poppy a lot of the songs are. You know, even like Broken, which I think at the time was conceived as like the angry follow-up to Pretty Hate Machine. You know, it's a much noisier record. If you get past the noise and you get past the scary videos, like there's really good hooks on that yeah. EP. And like the lyrics are evocative and they're and they're strongly emotional. And I don't think it was really until people like Johnny Cash started covering Trent Reznor songs that people could look beyond, again, the iconography of Nine Inch Nails and and just appreciate Trent Reznor as a musician. Uh, But, you know, again, that's his strength. The fact that, like, he wasn't just a guy pushing cultural buttons. Like, he could do that. But I think it was a means to an end. It was a way to get attention for his music, which once we get past the shock value of the time, like the music, I think, really can stand on its own.
4: Which again, I want to take this opportunity to say Harry Connick Jr., if you're listening, Trent Reznor covers album.
3: It'll be great. Oh my God. Emotion, melody, happiness and slavery, you know, some (laughs) scat singing on that, a little orchestra. It'd be beautiful. Oh my God. So
4: as Trent Starr was on the ascent in the late 80s, he crossed paths with Marilyn Manson, who then was working as a journalist for a South Florida lifestyle magazine called 25th Parallel. And uh, I, 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 presumably he was using his real name, Brian Warner, and not Marilyn Manson, which
3: isn't the most friendly pen name in the world. But who knows? Um, I love that his name is Brian Warner, by the way, <laughs> the most generic like guy <laughs> name yeah. of the time. Like It couldn't be any more bland. But yeah, I'm sure he was Brian Warner at the time, and then, you know, it w- he had to transform into Marilyn Manson later on. Can you imagine if he wasn't just showing up to, like, an
4: interview? Hey, how you doing? I'm, uh, I'm Marilyn Manson with 25th Parallel. <laughs> yeah, is this a good spot? Is this a good time? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that would be one way to get a unique interview in that era. But, but anyway, Brian Warner slash Marilyn Manson meets up with uh, Trent Reznor at a club in Florida. According to Manson's memoir, he describes Reznor as just sort of sulking in a corner during their first meeting. And... Thawed a little bit when they started chatting, but uh, you would say they, they had a lot in common and they became friendly. It was a good interview, but the power dynamic is really clear. I mean, Manson would say, I was just another journalist talking to me. It was a good way as any for him to pass the time in a show in a city where, where he didn't know anybody. So the power dynamic there was very clear.
3: I mean, I wouldn't even say that it was like a journalist rock star dynamic. It was more like a fanboy rock star dynamic. And you can see that like the second time that they meet, this is like a few years later and by now... Brian Warner has become Marilyn Manson. He has a band called the Spooky Kids, which I, I, mean, like, I, think I think it's like a hilarious name. Like, I mean, come on, like the Spooky Kids. Like, oh, my God, these kids are spooky. Like, look out for this band. Scooby-Doo. <laughs> anyway, like they were opening up for Nine Inch Nails at this club in Miami. And uh, after the show, uh, Manson walked up to Resner. He was tripping on acid at the time. <laughs> and he was basically like, looking for feedback from Reznor and he quickly ascertained that like Reznor did not watch the opening act he probably saw that they were called the spooky kids and was like no this band definitely sucks <laughs> I don't have to pay attention and uh Manson is just basically just blathering on you know high office kite and just being a fanboy with Reznor and he's, and he's passing him I think he eventually passes him a tape and he's like you know please listen to this And you think at that point, like, how many tapes has Reznor been passed at this point in his career? I'm sure many. And yet this tape somehow ends up making an impression on him. Yeah, it's
4: incredible that, like, that was the one he chose to listen to. Because a short time later, uh, when he's launching Nothing Records, his sort of vanity side label from Interscope, uh, Manson gets a call from Reznor's manager and he wants to hear more. And then days after uh, Manson sends him a a more complete demo, uh, he gets a call from Reznor himself to tell him that he's recording an album, the album that would become Downward Spiral, at the uh, Bel Air home on Cielo Drive where Sharon Tate was murdered in 1969, which Trent uh, christened Lee Pig after the message written on the door in Sharon Tate's blood. Uh, For a guy who uh, named himself Marilyn Manson, you know, the chance to go work in the famous Manson murders home is just like too good to pass up. And I guess he'd always wanted to record a version of uh, the the Charles Manson song, My Monkey, in the middle of that house. So uh, Reznor said, yeah, come on out. We're working on some uh, some recordings and let's try to get something happening. And uh, I think the first thing they actually collaborated on was a, a video for the Nine Inch Nails song, Gave Up. And Manson's pretending to play guitar in the background in, uh, in Sharon <laughs> Tate's living room, which
3: is what? fate. Fate's a hell of a thing. Yeah, and uh, you know— Can we just say pretty tasteless, too? I mean, come on. Like, these two guys, it's like, look, I have a lot of respect for Trent Reznor. I have, like, some affection for Manson. I don't know if I'd say respect, necessarily. But I don't know. Like, these two, like, nerdy guys hanging out in a place where horrific murders took place and glamorizing it it just seems kind of lame to me.
4: Yeah, years later, I think he tried to say that he passed it off as he had no idea the history of the place until after he would already, like, the deal had already been done, but... That seems pretty hard to believe. It's a pretty identifiable
3: place. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, Marilyn Manson, he's now entering the Nine Inch Nails world. And, you know, just to give a little background on Manson, as we said before, just as Trent Reznor was from the middle of the country and he grew up, you know, dreaming of a more exciting life and feeling alienated by the world around him, Manson was also from the middle of the country. He's from Ohio. But, you know, like Reznor's story... It seems like a little more conventional, like he's really just describing the lives of, I think, millions of people from the Midwest where, you know, he's he's talking about being alienated. But like when Manson recounts his origin story, of course, it has to be way more colorful than anyone's story ever. And there's two, I think, big things from his childhood that are worth highlighting. The first is the fact that when he was growing up, he was a very sickly child. He had a lot of allergies. He was allergic to everything from like eggs to like fabric softener. So he was bedridden for a long time. And he found out later that, in fact, he probably wasn't actually allergic to a lot of things because his mother essentially was mentally ill. She had this syndrome called Munchausen by proxy, which is this uh, phenomenon where parents basically make their kids sick in order to satisfy some deep psychological need. I think the idea is that the parent feels needed when their child is sick. And it's also something that, that they can obsess over and maybe like project their anxiety onto. So Manson discovers this later in his life. And not only did he have to deal with the difficulty of being a sick child, but now he has to also contend with the betrayal of a parent who was really abusing him like throughout his childhood, just to satisfy, you know, whatever psychological need that they had. So there's that, that is a very big thing. And then there's the story about his grandfather. And uh, this is uh, a a story yeah, I remember this story. This is He writes about this in his memoir, The Long, Hard Road Out of Hell, which is uh, one of the most, I think, notorious rock memoirs ever. And also, I think, one of the most sort of factually suspect rock memoirs. It's ridiculous. Like, yeah, there's a lot of things in that book that like you cannot take at face value. And one of them is the story about his grandfather. He tells a story about how when, when Manson was around the age of of 12, he was uh, in the basement of his grandfather's house, and he discovered what can be described—I guess we'll call it—a masturbation den. Would that be the <laughs> sure. proper term? That sounds about right. Yeah, it's basically this part of the basement, like where his grandfather would uh, keep very disturbing pornography, uh, including uh, instances of bestiality. And he would sit in a chair while wearing lingerie, and uh, he would masturbate while watching this this porn. And I guess there were like weird sex toys everywhere, and there's like used condoms there apparently. I guess his grandfather had, like, a tracheotomy. So, like, the sounds that he would make while, uh, you know, pleasuring himself were even more disgusting than they would be otherwise. And I guess he turned on, like, a model train to cover the sounds of his (laughs) masturbatory sounds. Now, like, look, this story, if it were just the fact that he had a tracheotomy and that he liked to, you know, masturbate in the basement, I could buy that because... Manson says he writes in his book that he used to like eavesdrop on his grandfather while he would be pleasuring himself, and that this was something that fascinated him. And you can extrapolate from there that this sort of formulated who he was going to be as a grown up. It's like, I can buy the tracheotomy. I can buy the masturbation. But like, when you start adding like the bestiality part and like the lingerie part, it just seems like bullshit to me. i, I like maybe there's a germ of reality there, but I think there just seems to be a ton of exaggeration for the sake of exaggeration
4: yeah for me it's the train bit that pushes it over the (laughs) the edge. the model train that's like a deleted scene from seven that's like some david fincher shit yeah i this definitely it makes you wonder if this was like a rejected video concept that he wanted to use somewhere and so he was really happy to like
3: work it into his memoir or something because it's yeah it's pretty extreme it's just like, it's like trying so hard, right? you know, to, and it, it, you know, and like the mother story, I mean, I, I buy that story, you yeah. know, I, that seems plausible. And it's like, again, like if you just wrote a story about like, you know, discovering your grandfather masturbating, that's a pretty disgusting story just on its own. You don't need the lingerie part. I just feel like that makes it less believable, but you know, maybe we're both wrong. Maybe this was the most unique masturbator in all of Ohio <laughs> and you know, this is the thing that made Marilyn Manson who he became.
4: It's definitely in him, whether or not it was real or just in his imagination. It's definitely in his mind. And it comes out on his first album once he signed to uh, Nothing Records in 1993. Uh, Manson begins working on his debut LP, which was initially called The Manson Family Album. Solid title there, but it uh, ultimately morphed into Portrait of an American Family. And the original producer of this album was uh, Roly Massaman, who previously worked with bands like The Swans. Uh, but as the recording progressed, the band felt that his style of production really wasn't working for him. They, were, they felt Roly was trying to make them more, just kind of shave down all the rough edges and make them the more of a pop band, which is really not what they were about at all. So uh, Resner ended up uh, stepping up into the uh, producer's seat, and it seemed like the ideal solution. You know, I mean, who better to nurture the depraved mind of Marilyn Manson than the guy from Nine Inch Nails? And in, uh, yeah, it's October 1993, uh, Reznor commits the project. He takes members of, uh, the touring members of Nine Inch Nails to help complete the album. Uh, They re-record many of the tracks and rework some of the old material and release it under the name Portrait of an American Family. And it didn't make a huge splash, but I, I don't think it charted, but it had some huge standout songs now, like. Dope hat, lunchbox, and cake and sodomy, uh, in which he proclaims himself the god of fuck. Which I hasten yes. to add was a yeah, that's a Charles Manson line right there. That's what he used to say to his followers. But uh, but it, it ended up sticking more with uh, with Marilyn. And in addition to Trent's musical expertise, he kind of becomes almost like a paternal figure in a way to Manson. And I, I love the story. There was one night during the sessions where I guess Manson was freaking out on psychedelics. And Trent took him and some of his band uh, in his minivan over to McDonald's to try to get him like a, a chill-out Happy Meal or something and started a little food fight in the car and just got the vibes back on on, a, you know, on an even plane, which is adorable in its own weird, twisted way.
3: Yeah, I mean, again, when they make the, uh, the Marilyn Manson biopic, I hope that scene is in there. The, the heartwarming <laughs> McDonald's scene with Trent Reznor and, and Manson having a food fight, I think that's very moving. I know the first... Manson music that I remember hearing came from the follow-up to the debut, which was Smells Like Children. It was the EP. It came out in 1995, and this ended up being the breakout hit for Marilyn Manson because of a very famous cover of the song Sweet Dreams by Eurythmics. And, of course, in Marilyn Manson's interpretation, it became this very dark, dirgy, gothy metal song, alt-metal song. And, you know, when I think about it now, I don't really remember, like, what that song sounds like. But I remember the music video where Marilyn Manson is, like, this very disturbing figure. Like, you don't really know what he is. It's like, is he a human? Is he an alien? Is he a monster? There's something very unusual about him. And it reminds me, in a lot of ways, of, like, horror movie franchises. Like, when you watch the first movie of a horror movie franchise, it's like the first time you see Freddy Krueger or Jason. It's very scary. It's like... What is this thing? Like, how can we contend with this? It's like, is this human? You know, is he going to kill me? What is it? And I think Manton had that same sort of impact the first time that you saw him on MTV. The thing about shock value, though, is that, of course, it has a very short shelf life. And once you get over the initial shock of seeing, you know, like a monstrous figure that's like, you know, mysterious and enigmatic, is that they quickly become silly and even funny, You know, and like, I think as you get deeper into like the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, like the first one's scary, but like by the fifth one, it's like pretty dumb. And like, you're just watching it for the camp value. You know, it's the same thing with the Friday the 13th films. And I think as we'll see as we get deeper into this episode, that Marilyn Manson had a very similar trajectory where when he first came on the scene, he was very terrifying. You know, he was the boogeyman of suburbia. People didn't know what to make of this guy. But then as we get to the end of the 90s and then into the aughts and beyond, he is more of a campy figure, I think, and more of a person that is, uh, I think, for the most part, unintentionally funny. Although (laughs) at times I think that he's in on his own joke maybe more than he gets credit for.
4: Yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, I feel like that happened quickly. As you said, it was a short shelf life for him doing his shock thing. Although I have to say... Choosing the cover Sweet Dreams with a video like that was pretty genius because, I mean, it's basically, you know, it, you will not be having Sweet Dreams after watching that video. I, I vividly remember having many nightmares after watching that as a, as a how overall it would have been eight years old or something when that came out. So totally yeah, good call for a, a video cover there. I mean, I think of how when you were describing your first reaction to Axl Rose and the Welcome to the Jungle video, just like, what is this
3: figure? Yeah, it was, it was truly, truly terrifying for a little kid. Yeah. It,
4: it was genuinely freaky.
3: Yeah. And again, I think it, it, it's got to be said where we're at in the timeline right now, which is the mid 90s, what he was doing was working like it was legitimately effective and shocking. And he was getting a lot of attention and was like rapidly becoming like a pretty huge rock star in the mid 90s.
4: And he really goes to a different level with Antichrist Superstar and he goes down to Reznor's Nothing Studios in New Orleans uh, to record there. And then Reznor's serving as producer again. And he's got more of his Nine Inch Nails associates associating with it. Um, and this is really the album that made Manson a, a major musical force, but it was also the album that would drive him and, uh, and Trent apart.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think there was a, deg- a degree of seriousness with Trent Reznor that he had for his work that like Manson to me did not, not that he didn't take his music seriously, but I just feel like when Reznor was working on a record, I get the sense that he was deep into it and was there to work. Whereas Manson, it seems like it was about the lifestyle. Like we're going to make the making of this album epic in a very textbook decadent kind of way
4: yeah i mean it it seems like it was designed to be a great chapter in his memoir like it's incredibly over the top he writes in his memoir that the sessions were not only not productive we were destructive uh they were just tense and chaotic and just went off the rails pretty much from day one i mean this was the era when pretty much all were concerned were smoking bones that they had swiped from graveyards new orleans and (laughs) snorting sea monkeys and Manson would later say, the first time I stayed up for four days straight on crystal meth, we started to put down the music to Antichrist Superstar. And I may say, it sounds it. I mean, that's what the record sounds like. He was experimenting with prescription drugs, which had a really, you know, equally corrosive effect on his creativity and band relations. Nothing Studios was a formal funeral home. So, I mean, it couldn't have been a great vibe. And the band weren't really happy being in New Orleans. They just thought it was was a dark and creepy place. And um, and the band dealt with their frustrations by acting out. They would throw drum machines out the window and put tape machines in the microwave and fry the circuitry just for the hell of it and smash guitars. And uh, my favorite story from the sessions is when uh, Manson and some of his bandmates set up a tent in the middle of the live room in the studio and watched all three Alien movies back-to-back all night. And then when they were over, set off fireworks indoors and nearly burnt the studio to the ground. (sighs) Yeah, I mean, it's just, its again, trying too hard. And Manson would also say he had taken to shoving sewing needles underneath his fingernails at this time to test his pain threshold because, as he wrote in his memoir, my emotional one had already been crossed. So that's what we're dealing with. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good,
0: and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon.
1: Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Yeah, when I look at these sessions, again, it just drives home that doing blow and drinking all day long is not really good for your mental or your physical makeup, because (laughs) it seems like all the characters in this story at this point, like, that's what they're doing. Even Trent Reznor. Reznor talked later, you know, after he cleaned up, that, like, he was deep into cocaine addiction at this time, that he was really drinking a lot. and. You know, even though he was maybe the more serious one, even he was acting out during these sessions. There's a story about how he took uh, one of Daisy Berkowitz's guitars. Daisy Berkowitz is a guitar player in Marilyn Manson's band, and he smashed it. And, like, Berkowitz basically just, like, walked out of the session after that because he was, like, so put off by how Reznor was behaving. Because I really feel like Reznor, you know, he still had that, I think, big brother role. I think people were looking to him for guidance and for approval. Uh, Because, you know, after Berkowitz leaves, uh, Twiggy Ramirez really steps up as being basically like the musical director of Marilyn Manson. And whenever Ramirez would be doing something, he would always look to Reznor for approval because he really considered Reznor to be like the only other musician (laughs) that was there at the time. So that ended up being, I think, threatening for Manson because this is a guy in his band. And yet the guy in his band respected Reznor more than him.
4: Yeah. Reznor was the adult in the room, basically, at that point that everyone looked to. This is really when the sort of the jealousy starts to creep in for Manson and Reznor. And a, a big tipping point for them was drugs. It was sort of the chief reason why he and Trent started to fall out during the sessions. Uh, years later, Manson claimed that Reznor came to him one day and basically said, you know, this can't continue. We, we, we have to stop with the drugs. This is we're not going to get any work done this way. We, we could die if we keep doing this. We need we need to stop. And Manson took it very seriously. You know, his, not only his producer, but really his, his mentor and idol in a lot of ways was telling him to clean up. Okay, sure, I'll do it. And he said the next day he, he got on the straight and narrow, to use his words, and, and tried to clean up. And uh, Reznor didn't. He didn't follow through with that at all. And in fact, Reznor started to sort of make fun of him and say that Manson was basically a nerd for no longer doing drugs. And um, Reznor and Twiggy Ramirez would just make fun of him by calling him Arch Deluxe. And which is an incredible insult because this was at the time in the '90s when McDonald's had a sandwich that was marketed to adults, and it it was a notorious advertising flop because you know McDonald's is trying to market an upscale burger to adults. It's preposterous. It's hokey. It's disingenuous. It's pompous. It's kind of pathetic. And the implication
3: being, so is a cleaned up Marilyn Manson. So incredible <laughs> insult, but very hurtful to him. I got to say, I'm going to be utilizing Arch Deluxe <laughs> in my personal life. When it's I'm, great. Yeah, when I'm smack talking to like a friend of mine, I'm going to definitely be dropping an Arch Deluxe reference at some point. But yeah, I mean, it, it shows that this wasn't just a one-way street in terms of like Manson acting like a bozo and Reznor being the upstanding one. There's certainly instances where it would be reversed and- Again, I think that has to do with just the amount of uh, substance abuse that was going on at this time. A story that really stands out from these sessions is this this time when Reznor and Manson had a huge fight. And Reznor actually kicked Manson out of the studio. And then he took a hammer to the computer hard drive where the masters for the album were held. And this really becomes a huge incident for these guys because for many, many years, and we're going to be talking about this later on in the episode... Manson thought that the masters for Antichrist Superstar were destroyed and like lost forever because of this, uh, you know, act of, I guess, drunken and drugged out destruction by Reznor. And it ended up being like a huge uh, wedge in their relationship.
4: When the album came out in 96, 97, this is really what made Manson not only a rising rock star, but just America's most wanted rocker in the world. I mean, he, he was just struck fear into the eyes of the, the country's conservative sect and Manson knew how to do it because he was one of them. You know, he grew up in in Ohio and later suburban Florida. And it it was basically his way of critiquing uh, organized religion and using it as a metaphor for uh, fascist elements in conservatism in the United States. And his concerts took on the American flag and it took on the Bible. And there was, gave a famous performance of the beautiful people at the VMAs in 1997. And he's, he's flanked by these sort of fake secret service agents. And he steps up to the podium and goes, my fellow Americans- We will no longer be oppressed by the fascism that is Christianity. I mean, in 1997, that is a huge thing to say on, you know, a basic cable award show. And it made him one of the most talked about people in the country. I mean, this was sort of just prior to the uproars caused by Britney Spears and then Eminem slightly after that. I mean, his his concerts were picketed by, you know, pretty much every major religious and civic organization you can imagine. And he took on this mythic stature I just I remember being in school and all the, like, urban legends involving, like, bestiality and Satan and, you know, removing a rib for sexual reasons and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, he became this larger-in-life figure. I mean, he was banned from performing in state-operated venues in Utah and, and schools in his home state of Florida threatened to expel kids for attending his shows. I mean, this was a huge, huge cultural figure.
3: Yeah, it reminds me of how, like, in the 80s there was that Satanic Panic. going on like where people thought satanic cults were lurking everywhere and that anxiety really transferred to Marilyn Manson in the 90s like he became the new again boogeyman that if you were scared about the kids getting involved in the dark side of of the world or you know worshiping the devil or whatever like Marilyn Manson was the person you were going to be afraid of and it's an interesting contrast with Trent Reznor at this time because you know Reznor you know Nine Inch Nails they put out The Downward Spiral in 1994, which is a huge landmark record. That's the album, of course, that has Closer on it. Nine Inch Nails ended up performing at Woodstock 94 that year, a very iconic performance. Trent Reznor covered in the mud, you know, maybe the most famous uh, performance of the band's career. But then after that, he goes into this long hibernation period where he is working for years on this album called The Fragile, a double record that comes out in 1999, which is an album I love, by the way. And I would say it's probably my favorite Nine Inch Nails record. And I think history has proven that, you know, for Nine Inch Nails fans, that that is one of the band's great records. But, like, I remember when that album finally dropped in 99 after that five-year gap, that, you know, it debuted at number one, and then it fell 15 spots the next week, which at the time was the biggest drop, I think, in history for uh, a number one album. And there really was this window in the late 90s where... Marilyn Manson seemed, like, significantly more famous than Trent Reznor. Even, again, the people ultimately held, I think even then, like, they, I think they held Reznor in higher esteem critically. You know, I think he was looked at as, like, a better artist. But as you were saying, like, he didn't have the same sort of, like, mythic boogeyman stature that manson had and i'm just curious like do you think on some level like the teacher became the student in this scenario or that or that he became the person that like in some way looked to manson with envy it's tough to say i can't imagine that he envied
4: any of the celebrity stuff that went along with manson i mean you know i I, one of the most iconic images of manson for me is on the vma's red carpet with uh with rose mcgowan you know, looking like, he looks like Jamiroquai. He's got like a big, I think he's got, in my memory at least, he's got like a big fuzzy top hat or something. And I mean, he looks kind of more ridiculous than Marilyn Manson ordinarily would. And I just, I can't imagine, that became so much of Manson's life, it seemed like in the late 90s. And I can't imagine Reznor would have cared too much about that. I almost feel like he resented the fact that he was more prolific in that time because it was a long gap between, what was it, five years between uh, Downward Spiral and uh, and The Fragile. I almost feel like I, I picture Reznor at that time as sort of like constantly being in the studio, trying to work out his next move. And if anything else, just feeling like he was falling behind in a production race standpoint, almost like Brian Wilson in the Beatles, uh, as opposed to any of the major, like, you know, the, I, I don't think he wanted to be that big of a cultural figure as Manson became, but, uh, but yeah, I think that, that the, the musical output that, that Manson had after that, uh, definitely affected him.
3: Well, there was also one project that Reznor released in that gap, you know, between Downward Spiral and The Fragile was the Lost Highway soundtrack, which is an awesome thing that he put together for the David Lynch movie that came out in 1997. But that was also a competitive thing for him and Manson. Like, wasn't Manson going to do that soundtrack originally?
4: Yeah, David Lynch asked him first, and I don't really know why he got taken off of it, but Reznor eventually got the job. And yeah, that was a huge blow to Manson's ego at that time. It it also took Trent away from Sessions for Antichrist Superstar, because I think they were done about in tandem, too. So that kind of hurt Manson's feelings also, that not only is is Trent not here at certain points, but he's doing this other job that he missed out on. So that kind of, I I think Manson at this point is really starting to resent Trent's role in his success, which is why... Mechanical Animals, the album that followed it, with which Trent had nothing to do with, had such a completely different sound. It was almost like T-Rex or something. It was such a change in course. And uh, it was also his most autobiographical album to date and really established him as an artist who, you know, took musical risks in addition to social ones.
3: Yeah, and you see them moving in opposite directions, Reznor and Manson. It seems like personally, too, they were moving in opposite directions. Like Manson ended up writing about this in his book that in the late 90s, he was making attempts like to reach out to Resner, I think just to hang out, you know, just to be pals again. And Resner was really blowing him off. And again, this was when he was in the middle of that, I think, intense deliberation over the fragile. But it seems like there was also a feeling on Reznor's side that like he had to put distance between like him and Manson that like, I think he looked at Manson as a toxic presence in his life. He gave an interview, I think it was in 97 with Spin, where he referred to Manson as a careerist, (laughs) which I think, you know, whenever someone accuses another person of being a careerist, I do feel like there is an element of jealousy sometimes in that, you know, this idea that like, well, the reason that you're doing so well is because you care about your career. Well, it's like, well, I'm sure Trent Reznor also cared about his career. I mean, you don't become a successful as Reznor without also being a careerist but I think that as you were saying before the pursuit of fame and self-mythology that Manson I think was primarily concerned with at this time even more than music it was something that I think for Reznor he was starting to back away from I think he was starting to outgrow that moment in his life and You know, to go back to The Long Road Out of Hell, the the Manson memoir, because that came out in 98. I think it was 98. It was like late 90s, which is a crazy time for him to be putting out a memoir. I mean, this guy, he hasn't had that long of a career yet. And he's already writing his life story. And, you know, as we've said before, there's a lot of things in that book that have the feel of bullshit. And there's also just like a lot of ugliness in that book for the sake of ugliness. Like, I think it's fair to call that a misogynist book like the treatment of women in that book and like how you know how it glamorizes the debasement of uh, women uh, women that would be backstage at Marilyn Manson concerts especially in retrospect it's very uh gross (laughs) it hasn't aged well uh in the least and I I just think that with Reznor it just feels like that maybe he was moving beyond that in in some respects
4: yeah, I mean, that book is just filled with so many grotesque scenes. I mean, the meet and greet section alone uh, is 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 absolutely horrifying. Yeah, it, it is a, such a weird move. Was he 30 years old when he wrote that too? I mean, it, it was such a weird move to do that at that point. And you're right. It, it seemed purely to be done to sort of like establish his own myth at this period, which I can't imagine that, that Trent would have given a shit about what people knew about him. I don't – I know very little about, you know – his personal life and his his story. There doesn't seem to be much of a myth to Trent to me. I picture him as as you know a workmanlike songwriter and producer, and I mean that as a compliment. Whereas, he, you know Manson is this uh, cartoon in a lot of ways. But Trent really is starting to, to resent the sort of the more careerist side of Manson, and he puts his feelings into a song on the Fragile called "Starfuckers Incorporated," uh,
3: <laughs> which is <laughs> very subtle. Yeah, yeah, subtle criticism there. <laughs>
4: Incredible title. Uh, It's directed at Manson and also at Courtney Love. And, you know, as the title suggests, it criticizes sort of the careerist fame, hungry artists who are driven more by celebrity culture than by this authentic need to to create. Um, And you also get the impression that Reznor is one of those people that believes that art comes from pain. And I think that he resents people that maybe looks like they're having sort of a better time than he is doing it, maybe. I don't know, maybe if that plays a role in it too. Like I, I picture him as sort of like, again, scowling in a dark studio as opposed to being on the red carpet like Manson at the VMAs.
3: I think he was, you know, he was a decade into his career at that point. And I think he had gotten maybe some of that, a lot of that decadence out of his system, even though he was still not cleaned up at this point. I think he actually ended up having an overdose, like on the fragile tour. So like he wasn't totally cleaned up himself, but I mean, I think he was in a years long process at that point of like slowly sort of extricating himself from the rock star lifestyle and, Maybe once he got some distance from it, it just seemed unseemly to him. And in a way, I think Manson personified that. In a way, I almost wonder if he looked at Manson as being like his own sort of dark id. Ooh, you know, and this uh. is this is like the person I have to get away from. You know, because it's like the worst part of myself.
4: And and he tells him off in the song Starfuckers Inc. And it includes a nod to another legendary tell-off song, Carly Simon's "You're So Vain." I bet you think this song's about you. And Manson knew all too well that the song was about him. But instead of sniping back in the song or in the press, he had a better idea. And I love this. He called Trent and basically said, you know what? I'm sick of people asking if this song is about me. So I got a really cool idea for a video that's going to fuck with everybody. So Manson co-directs the song's video and even makes a cameo at the end, uh, which is just sort of like the big twist ending. Everyone knows this song is is a diss track to Manson. And at the very end, it turns out that he's in on it. And then he would join Nine Inch Nails on stage at Madison Square Garden in the summer of 2000 to, to duet on the song together. And I think this is kind of like possibly a rival's first. You know, it's the best response to a diss track ever, aside from writing a better diss track. It fucked with people. It got Manson an extra dose of publicity. And it brought him back with his friend, although temporarily. They would say at the time in, in 2000, like it was really good to see each other again. And Reznor would say, you know, I reluctantly missed him. We were like brothers. And I couldn't even tell you how we fell out. It was something to do with getting some fame, and both of us being out of our minds. But they—they they were reunited against a common shared enemy at this period. Uh, they wanted to unite against Limp Biscuit and New Metal. Uh, I think Manson <laughs> right. was saying, you know, we shouldn't be competing. There's much more terrible music that we should be united against. And they—they—they uh, name dropped Limp Biscuit as one of them.
3: Yeah, you know, to me this just, uh, you know, points to like the pro wrestler Carnival Barker side of Marilyn Manson. You know that he could put aside his own ego and hurt that Reznor would have written a song like this about him and, <laughs> and, and just recognize the promotional opportunities you know that like to actually get involved in this like to lean into this depiction rather than to act offended it was only going to play to his benefit like you said it, it makes him look like he has a sense of humor about himself uh, and it, it was just a great opportunity for publicity so I think You know, that is Manson's genius to me. He's willing to make himself look like the clown if it's going to get him a little extra attention. Now, what's interesting about this is that there's still this issue lurking in the background having to do with Marilyn Manson's Masters, you know, the, the albums that he made when he was on Nothing Records. Uh, there was that incident that we talked about earlier, where Resner, you know, took a hammer to this hard drive, and at the time, I think uh, Manson believed that Resner actually like destroyed the masters, that they wouldn't be able to be retrieved, and and then many years later, like once we get into the mid aughts You know, Manson was thinking about, you know, I want to do an anniversary edition of Antichrist Superstar. And he reaches out to Nothing Records to ask, uh, you know, for access to his masters. And he's told that they're basically lost. They can't find any of the original recordings for the first three albums. And Manson is understandably crushed by this because not only does he uh, feel that this label has wronged him, and I guess by this point, like nothing records didn't even exist. I think it was shuttered in two thousand four. But I think he looked at it as like a, almost like an intentional betrayal on Resner's part. That like Resner essentially like erased his artistic legacy. And, and did it to hurt him. And it was something that was like a huge deal uh, for him in the moment. And it really reignited this feud at this point.
4: It was either intentional or just lack of caring. I mean, this was a guy's life's work and it really broke his heart. And he would say, you know, I,
3: I don't know what kind of people
4: do things like that. It's erasing history. It's erasing your life's work. It's killing a part of you. Uh, and so that really, uh, hurt Manson deeply and they spent much of the next 10 years just sort of sniping at one another in the press. I mean, Reznor would say in an interview, he and I are two strong personalities that could coexist for a while, but things changed. And then Manson fired back, I think fame and power distort people's personalities, referring to Reznor. Uh, when Resner got off drugs in 2001, he used that as another excuse to sort of put some distance between the two of them. Uh, Reznor called Manson unhealthy to be around. And uh, he openly mocked his 2004 cover of Depeche Mode's Personal Jesus. Uh, he said, somebody, I guess, on, on one of his, like, fan forums, he was talking to fans, and uh, somebody asked him if he'd ever want to do a cover, and Reznor's response was, I was really hoping to do something unique and pertinent, like do an exact copy of Personal Jesus, but it was already taken. Shit. <laughs> Just- <laughs> oh,
3: man. Well, and, I mean, the, the quote that really stands out to me is that interview Reznor did in 2009 where he referred to Marilyn Manson, as a dopey clown, (laughs) Uh, which, you know, and I think he meant dopey, you know, in the figurative sense and also a literal sense, because, you know, he was making fun of Manson for basically being this guy that was glamorizing, being on drugs and alcohol, you know, even now that he was in middle age, which I think for Reznor, this was something that was a particular sticking point because he had to fight hard, I think, for his own sobriety. And I don't know if he was embarrassed by how he was in the 90s, but I think he certainly felt like... That's not something I need to relive at this moment in my life. You know, he gave an interview in 2011 where I think someone asked him about whether he'd want to work with with Manson. And, you know, at first he was diplomatic. He said, you know, Manson, he's a talented person. And he said, we've had our problems. But he said, but I wear suits. I'm an adult now. You know? And that really underscores this idea. It's like, okay – It's almost like, you know, like Manson was his college years. You know, it's like, that's the guy I partied with when I was in college. But like now I'm, you know, I'm in my 40s. I'm not going to act like I did, you know, back in my 20s. And it's always funny with me because we've had this again. This is like another recurring thing in our episodes that like when you have two people who are rivals, but they're also friends. You know, like they started out as friends and then maybe... They have a falling out. When they snipe at each other publicly, it's really mean, but there's always a ring of truth to it. It's like you get the sense that the rivals know each other better than anyone else yeah. knows them. Because when Manson fires back at Reznor, he says, you know, we, I don't think we ever had a whole lot in common. We had a certain sense of humor in common. He was always more of the jock, and I was more of the burnout. Mm. And I think... That seems to be a shot at, like, what happened to Reznor in the 90s and, and beyond, that, like, he went from being this skinny guy in leather pants to, like, being, like, pretty muscular and jacked, which was kind of a weird transformation, I think, for a lot of people, because he didn't look like the outsider anymore. Like, by the aughts and beyond, like, Reznor actually was, like, a pretty, like, handsome, even hunky guy you know he was like in good shape he's like this alt rock sex symbol yeah exactly which I think is what Manson is referencing there I mean I don't think it's fair to call Reznor like a sellout or something like that but there definitely was a transformation like where he was more of a rock star you know by the end of the 90s and, and I think he projected that kind of image moving forward And something really happened in the late 2000s and
4: early 2010s I think Reznor's career reputation and overall fame seemed to shoot way past Manson's again And I think it began after Johnny Cash covered Hurt, which gave him this bonus dose of cred as like a songwriter with a capital S, as opposed to like a 90s shock rocker, which is what Manson's reputation really rested on at this point. And, you know, he'd won an Oscar, which is, you know, without question, the single most prestigious award in in entertainment uh, for his work on the 2010 Social Network soundtrack. And his recording career also bounced back after the sort of relative failure of The Fragile. He had 2003's With Teeth, which had some really great radio-friendly tracks like The Hand That Feeds and Only and Every Day It's exactly the same. Uh, So this is kind of when Trent sort of mounts his slow but steady comeback.
3: Yeah, I mean, Reznor ultimately became an artist who was not defined just by one decade. I think Nine Inch Nails is always going to be associated with the 90s but like Reznor himself he's done a lot of great things since the 90s and for a lot of people they might know him more for his film scores at this point than they know him from closer in the 90s whereas Manson is always going to be fixed in that moment in the mid 90s like where he was the national boogeyman and it was a very strong image in the short run but overall again it goes back to the horror movie franchise analogy I was making earlier that, like, all horror movie franchises eventually turn into a campy joke at some point. You know, like, the first couple movies are scary, but once you get to the seventh or eighth movie, you know, people are going just to laugh at it. And I think about that classic Onion headline about Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson now going door-to-door trying to shock people. (laughs) I mean, that's such a devastating own. I'm surprised that Manson still had a career after that. that He didn't (laughs) just, like, wipe the makeup off and go back to Ohio. I will say this, like, I interviewed Marilyn Manson in uh, 2015. He put out a record that year called The Pale Emperor, which I got to say, like, for a late period Marilyn Manson record is, like, pretty solid. And I think around that time he had a song uh, in on the John Wick soundtrack. So he was kind of making, like, a mini comeback himself. And I have to say that, like, I think Manson is always going to be somewhat relevant with the music press because he's such a great interview. He's so good at, like, giving these quotes that I think are self-aware. But are also, I think, unintentionally hilarious in a lot of ways. Like one of my favorite quotes from our interview was – he said he was talking about his latest record. He said, there was a time when metaphorically you sold your soul to become a rock star. I think that I stopped paying for a couple years or I didn't pay as much as I should have. (laughs) This record was my payment to him saying, check is through now, motherfucker. This is payment due plus interest. (laughs) That's (laughs) amazing. he can say this stuff with a straight face. I have to say too that like a lot of our interview, we just talked about the Doors. You know, what? so that also gives you another indication of like where Manson is coming from. I mean, again, he's a ridiculous guy, but I'm glad he exists because there really aren't any other rock stars quite like him. You know, even now.
4: No, absolutely, and you know, it, it's heartwarming because in later years, he and Trent did bury the hatchet. It it, it came in a weird way in uh, 2017. Manson was watching the HBO series The Defiant Ones, which was a portrait. Of the working relationship between Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine, and the series included interviews with Manson and Trent, and it made him nostalgic for their time working together. And uh, I guess around the same time, uh, Marilyn Manson collaborator Tyler Bates crossed paths with uh, Trent Reznor at a movie orchestration event, and he told Tyler that that he wanted to get back in, in touch with Manson, and they connected over email, and Trent told them that, you know, he still had his masters, they hadn't been destroyed with a hammer or intentionally lost or anything. So that really removed the primary roadblock in their relationship, and, and Manson's anger dissipated. And he'd say, I just had a pent-up resentment because I thought he'd ruined my career, like the history of my career, like burning the Dead Sea Scrolls or something. But any sort of past squabbles or arguments just all went away when he learned that his work hadn't
3: been destroyed. And I think for, on, on Resner's side, you know, I think he got over that period in his life where he was embarrassed by Manson. And embarrassed by the decadence and the hedonism that he represented. And I think he came to appreciate what those two guys together signified in the mid-90s. Because, again, it's a a kind of rock stardom that is totally extinct now. Like, there's no rock star now that, like, people are picketing, you know, because they're afraid that they're going to corrupt the youth. I mean, there's no rock star that's famous enough to have that kind of impact. And there's this email, I guess, that he wrote to Manson, like, where he, he told him that. He's like, look, you know, I, it pisses me off that no one's dangerous anymore, you know? And I like that, you know, I appreciate what we brought to the music scene in the mid-90s because I really feel like it's gone, you know, now. I guess this is like a heartwarming ending to this story. Like, you would not expect a heartwarming ending, but I feel like these two came to appreciate what the other guy brought to the table. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals.
2: sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the
0: world listen to creating a con the story of bitcoin on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
2: i am the ferryman in the shadows of the afterlife the ferryman of souls guides america's most influential spirits to their eternal rest where are you taking me are you death
1: Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: We've now reached the part of our episode where we give the pro side of each side of the rivalry. Let's talk about the pro-Trent Reznor side first. I mean, I think this is like the pretty easy case to make. This is the obvious one to make. I really feel like Trent Reznor is maybe the most singularly talented musician to come out of the alt-rock era of the 1990s. I mean, not just the fact that he can play so many different instruments or that he's like a really great songwriter, yeah, you know, obviously he had a great visual aesthetic. And he's also been able to transfer those talents to different kinds of music. And now, you know, he's like one of the great film composers to be working in cinema. And the arc of his career and, and the, the fact that he was, again, able to make such a strong impression with nine-inch nails, but also not be sort of contained by nine-inch nails, not to be defined just by what he did uh, you know, 25 years ago. It just seems like he's always been able to keep moving forward write really good music, and really he's like one of the only people from that era where if I hear Trent Reznor's putting out new music, I have an expectation that it could be the best thing that he ever did, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a real testament to an artist that, you know, if you're like 30 years into your career and people still think that you're capable of greatness, um, that really puts you up there like with the great musicians of all time.
4: Yeah, there's a subtlety and I'll, I'll use that term loosely, to, to his music that I think is definitely more suited to the long game than Manson's sort of throw-it-into-your-face approach. And just like the ambient work, like like Ghosts 1 through 4, I, I thought that was an incredible album. And, you know, I mean, Trent seems to have the power position across the board, you know, longer, more sustained career. And, and Manson may have maybe had higher commercial peaks in the late 90s and, and certainly higher celebrity status, but Reisner's career was a lot more consistent. And like you said, he achieved success outside of the realm of, of mainstream radio Plus, he was the guy who uh, who signed Manson in the first place and I think was, I, I, at very least, you would say the co-architect of his sound at a crucial part in his career. So, I think without Reznor, you don't have Manson, or at least the Manson that, that we we know and love and sometimes fear.
3: So, going over the pro Marilyn Manson side, you know, I think it is fair to say that at his peak, he was, I think, significantly more famous than Trent Reznor. I think people knew... Nine Inch Nails, obviously, but Manson had the kind of fame where even if you never watched MTV or you never bought any rock records at all, you knew who Manson was and chances are he scared the hell out of you. And it is the kind of rock stardom that really doesn't exist anymore and he might be the last version of that. Uh, which I think still makes him relevant in his own way. I don't think he's ever going to come close to being as famous as he was in the mid-90s, but I really think that every couple of years, Manson's going to bubble up and give a round of interviews that just reminds people that he is like a great talker, and he's a great self-promoter. And even if you aren't interested in his latest record, you're going to want to like hear what he has to say because it's probably going to be entertaining.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean... I can't pretend to be the world's biggest Marilyn Manson fan because I'm absolutely not. But yeah, I kind of love him. I love the mythology. I love the self-conscious provocation. I love the pro wrestling level ridiculousness and just his flamboyant persona and the outrage. You know, God bless the God of fuck, I have to say.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Now, when we look at these two guys together, I mean, look, if you believe that rock and roll or youth music in general should be dangerous, then you have to look at the peak of these two guys in the 90s as one of the great moments in rock. I mean, it's hard to imagine parents getting upset about rock stars now, but back in the 90s, these guys ensured that music would be unsafe. So for that reason alone, I think, again, even if you're not a fan of Manson or like you've outgrown Nine Inch Nails, it's hard not to look back on these two guys, not with fear, but with affection.
4: Yeah, I also think they were one of the best examples of the sort of student-teacher relationship in rock. Reznor helped hone Manson's craft and helped him reach his creative heights. And then Reznor's sense of competition kicked in once Manson's success threatened to overshadow his own. And it pushed him to do consistently good work to keep up. And despite all the snorted bones and ketamine and explosives and broken glass and God knows what else, Trent and Manson were able to patch things up and stay friends. And like you said, I think that's a happier ending than any of us saw coming for the story.
3: So Jordan, it's been a lot of fun talking about these two beautiful people, beautiful people. <laughs>
4: well played i was i was wondering the whole episode how we're gonna get one in but
3: but you above and beyond that's the most dramatic part of our episode what terrible pun will be dropped at the end of the episode steven
4: if if you didn't you know i would have been hurt ah Ah.
3: there we go well if you're still listening after those two terrible puns i'm here to say so long thank you for listening to our episode this week (laughs) we'll be back with more feuds and beefs and long-simmering resentments next week
4: Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.